Managing Violence Podcast, Season 6, Episode 8, with the incomparable Jeff Thompson. I would say I'm still a hypocrite. Now, I'm still making mistakes. The only thing I can say in my, in my defence is that I catch it quickly and I admit it, but I'm still a hypocrite most days and I'm still making mistakes most days. Um, and my ego sometimes is still too fat. Um, and, and I'm nowhere near as clever as I would like to think I am. So I can see that and I'm working on that. But I, in deep inside me, there's a kindness and a love for people. And my dharma has always been the same. When I find the truth, I'm going to share it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another very special episode of the Managing Violence podcast. Today, I am joined by one of my absolute heroes, one of the guiding lights in my early self-defense and violence management journey. In fact, probably the first uh, author, because uh, it, it was his written work that, that first impacted me, the first author that really got me thinking outside of martial arts and more into the, bro the broader realm of violence and uh, everything that goes into managing violence, recovering from violence, preventing violence, and that is, of course, the one and only Jeff Thompson. Uh, Jeff can quite accurately be referred to as the grandfather of modern self-defense. He's written uh, a, a ton of books, I think over 45 books now, most of which uh, have had some connection to violence and martial arts. He's released VHS tapes, DVDs, uh, books, movies. Uh, he's won a BAFTA for crying out loud. He's written stage plays, musicals. Uh, he, he's done it all. He's done it all both as an instructor and as a writer, internationally renowned, published all over the world uh, in, in articles, taught for the likes of Chuck Norris. Uh, and he, he is just a legend. Uh, and uh, man, what a privilege to sit and chat with Jeff Thompson. Before we dive into the interview, I need to mention that this episode, along with all others, is brought to you by Australian Warfighters Coffee not only a fantastic drop of coffee that keeps me going early in the morning and late at night when I record these interviews, but uh, they also contribute to uh, helping Aussie veterans return to the workforce through training and employment. Uh, so great things that they do. Check out AustralianWarfighters.com. We thank them for their support and for their service. Now, I know you're gonna want more from Jeff Thompson. We chatted offline. We're probably gonna do another episode based on uh, his other most recent book, which is uh, coming out soon. Uh, well, sorry, which has already been released, uh, which is The Divine CEO. So I, uh, I'm gonna be reading that and we'll be chatting to Jeff soon. But if you'd like more from this particular episode, make sure you sign up at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash managing violence. If you sign up to the $5 or $10 a month tier, then you will get bonus content from this very episode where Jeff gives an extra 20 minutes or so of his time to answer some set questions uh, that we ask every guest for the last couple of seasons. I'm sure you'll enjoy those. Uh, and for five bucks a month, uh, you get access to bonus content from all our guests in, from season four onwards. So uh, if you have enjoyed the caliber of guests we've had, people like Tim Kennedy, John Hackleman, uh, Paul Vunak, uh, Tim Larkin, uh, Dr. Gav Schneider, and so many more. Uh, make sure you head over to our Patreon. Also, make sure you join the Managing Violence Tribe on Facebook. That's our group, the Managing Violence Tribe. Also, make sure you like our page, Managing Violence Podcast, on Facebook, Managing Violence on Instagram, Managing Violence on Twitter. 
and pretty much everywhere else. Uh, Joe Saunders on LinkedIn. If you want to connect with me personally, would love to talk to you. All right, that's enough plugging. I'm sure you're here for GT. So here we are, the one and only Jeff Thompson. Okay, I'm joined here by the legend, Jeff Thompson, uh, one of my bucket list guests when I first started this show. I put a couple of names on a list in it. I've still got the spreadsheet that I said, maybe one day uh, I'll, I'll get some of these guys and, uh, and Jeff Thompson was the top of that list. So uh, Jeff's first book, Watch My Back, which was published in 1992. I first came across that as I was getting into this field uh, and it was the first real paradigm shifting book that I read that uh, got me thinking outside of the martial arts and more about what real violence actually looks like. And as a 18 year old bouncer who uh, hadn't grown up around real violence, it was uh, certainly an instructional read <laughs> to, uh, to contextualize what I was experiencing and, and to let me know it wasn't just me. Uh, so Jeff's work has, has formed a soundtrack uh, of my development. Uh, I've read so many of his books. Like I don't even know how many I've got on my shelf. I think I've bought Watch My Back. I think I'm about to up to the fifth purchase now because I keep giving them away. Uh, so I, I, I've got the audible version that I just I have on standby, but uh, the uh, the print version I keep giving away. So Jeff, that's a, it's a long way of me saying thank you for being here. Uh, it's a tremendous honour to me to have you on the other line. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for the kind words. Now, Jeff, I'm not going to spend any time giving your bona fides or why people should listen to you because I think if they're listening to this show, they probably know who you are. Uh, if you don't know who Jeff is, uh, you will by the end of this episode. But um, Google him. He's, he's got so much material out there. There's so many interviews. There's, <laughs> there's so much media. There's books. There's podcasts. There's DVDs. There's VHS tapes. Uh, he hasn't left his trail undocumented. <laughs> so if you want to know about Jeff, there's plenty of ways to find out. Don't be lazy. Uh, Jeff, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit offline about just the, uh, the nature of the conversation we can have. And you, you're for, uh, gracious enough to send me a copy of Notes from a Factory Floor. Uh, through your publisher, uh, which I believe is being released on the 10th of September, if I got yeah. that correct. Uh, and it was just a, a fascinating read uh, to really chronologically go through your life from the time Watch My Back was released until the present day. And there is so much in that book that we could unpack, but uh, for the sake of us only having a, a window of time here, uh, I wanted to start focusing the conversation just around, I guess, what what brought you fame, I guess, or brought you into the public eye, which was your time on the doors uh, in Coventry. And uh, let's, let's start at the beginning about the entry into door work because yeah. so many of us, and like I got into door work because I just didn't want to be broke. <laughs> I, was, I was a university student and I didn't want to be as broke as I was. Uh, and I was, a, I was a big kid and I was on a national judo team and I thought door work was a logical way to make money. Uh, for you, it had a much deeper purpose. If we can start there. Yes, yeah. Well, I'll tell you the secret. I'll tell you the secret of all the unfolding. If you imagine that watch my back is the geometric point that's the starting point um, and all of the 50 books the films the plays we've got a film out in america at the moment with orlando bloom um, about kind of metaphysical self-defense all started from watch my back but it started just before that and it started because i was uh, a second down in karate but suffering badly with depression had all these physical skills but was frightened all the time Frightened even more when I got my black belt, actually, because now I was um, a scared kid with a black belt. I was supposed to be invincible, but I, but I still felt terrified of my own biology, terrified of my own internal monologue. 
Um, so I kept suffering with these depressions. And I remember buying books that promised to tell me the secret to how to overcome my fear. And every single time I'd get my book, I'd come home, I'd have a cup of tea and I'd think I'm going to get the answer. And it never gave me the answer. And I realized in retrospect that the authors either didn't know the answer or they were too scared to offer the answer or they couldn't articulate the answer. But either way, they, they didn't give it me. And I remember feeling very mad about this. And I remember saying to myself, when I find the truth, I'm going to tell everybody. And one of the things I have learned is that the truth is available equally. It's equitably to everyone. Everyone in the world has an equitable ability to access truth, no matter where they are, no matter what their restriction is, that truth is there. What I, re what I said to myself was, when I find the truth, I'm going to tell everybody. I didn't realise um, how much courage that would take to actually put that down on paper. But that was the beginning. And that's what the, that was kind of, I guess, if you look at the, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Kabbalic tree of life, which is like the, the esoteric martial arts. Um, it says that the, the master sets the table for the servant before he eats himself. In other words, if we, want, if we want to know something, if we want to know a truth, find somebody to give it to. Find a body or a party that needs that truth and the truth will be given to you. So when I said to myself, when I find the truth, I'm going to tell everybody, I'd accidentally triggered on the secret even though it took me a long, long time to articulate what that was. So after this particular depression, um, and if you've suffered with depression, you'll know that you'll be lying there at four in the morning in a cold sweat, and it feels like the end of the world. Even your own internal monologue is kicking sand in your face. It's a very terrifying place to be. I just remember I had, I had young children, I had a wife, I was in my early 20s, and I just remember thinking, I'm not prepared to live like this anymore. Just not prepared to do it. And I just felt this sudden rush of courage. I guess it was a communication with my highest self. And I just thought, I just have this idea. I'm going to write down everything I'm afraid of. Everything. And I'm going to confront everything I'm afraid of. Uh, confrontation, desensitization. Get, confront the things I'm afraid of and become desensitized to the feelings, to the biology. Um, and this made the form of a pyramid. I put my least fear on the bottom step, my worst fear on the top step, and I systematically started to climb up the pyramid. Literally, this is directly from Ushiba, Maria Ushiba, the founder of Aikido. Um, absorb 99% of your fears, and you will see that they are all false. They have no reality. They are all conceptualizations. Of course, that takes a lot of courage because at the beginning there, three-dimensional monsters and as you get closer to them and get more detail they really growl they kick off they posture they threaten to end your world but when you say okay do your worst you know depression knocks on the door come in have a sit down put your feet up this is my wife this is my kids stay as long as you want and it threatens to take your body threatens to take your life threatens to take your health take it it's, i'm sick of it anyway I'm tired of it anyway. This body, is, this body is a burden to me. Whatever you want to take. So in other words, I completely surrendered to it. I said, whatever. Whatever you're going to do, do it. Whatever you're threatening, do it. Every time I did that with the fear, the fear dissipated instantly. It had, I had to be certain. Ushiba said it beautifully. 99% of it has to be absorbed. And he is a man. He is a man. 
that did absorb 99% of his fears. Um, so each time I climbed, each time I overcame a fear um, on my pyramid, I grew in confidence, I grew in courage, I grew in wisdom, I grew in knowledge. My, I, I started to develop what, what they call in Islam, yakim, certainty. I started to develop, um, I think in, in the Judaic case, they call it knowing. And something that you actually know. I've overcome that. I've confronted that. It wasn't real. And I know that for certain. So that's a certainty. And you can use that. That's a reference point. Of course, I started to realize as I was climbing the pyramid that the person confronting the fears was my essential self, my observer. He was the witness. He was the one that was watching all of this drama. Of course, at the top of the pyramid, I had a fear of violent confrontation. Um, and the only way I could ascertain to overcome a fear of violent confrontation was to confront violence. So I took a job as a nightclub bouncer. In the meantime, my confidence had grown so much I'd left the factory. I started to work on a building site. I was training more. I was starting to expand my, my martial repertoire. I was standing up to my wife. I was standing up to my mom. I was um, I was less afraid of change. I started to recognize all of these subtle fears that were sitting just below the placeholders of the mundane fears. I started to trace them back and all of them had no substance. So when my wife said to me, if you go out that door, I'm going to change the locks. You won't ever get back in. I would just say, well, change the locks. I'm going training. Change the locks. Um, and if you want to change locks, if they're not there, I'll go, I'll go and live somewhere else. So I started to, I started to use this concept of, um, you know, whatever you're threatening me with, let's have a look at it. If you're threatening to kill me, let me have a look at that. I want to see that. I want to observe it. I want to see what that looks like. Once I wasn't buying into the conceptualization of fear, they started to dissipate. My final fear was this fear of violent confrontation. Um, so I took a job as a nightclub bouncer um, and realized on the first night that I'd made a mistake. I mean, I was terrified. I was working in a city that was polled as the most violent in Europe for its size and population. It was a very violent time in Coventry. Even the hot dog vans had bouncers because people would just tip them up. If you left, if you, if a police car uh, pulled up outside a pub and went inside, they'd come out and the police car would be tipped on its head. It was a very lawless, it was like the wild west. <laughs> So the doorman were getting paid four times the, 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 the wage of a factory worker and for no good reason. And, and for a good reason, you know, uh, people were being killed on these doors. People were being killed in bar fights, not necessarily with guns, but with, with mostly with knives or with just being stamped to death. You know, four of my friends were murdered during my period as, as a doorman. So I took a job on the night on this nightclub door called Busters. I was working with a legendary character called John Orson Anderson. Um, and it was just a terrifying night. It was like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, kind of like, like the whole, at the whole essay in one night. It was, it was colourful. It was extreme. It was ostentatious. It was, it was delicious. It was beautiful. It was scary. Everything felt seductive or confrontational um there was an old saying in coventry i i bust with busters nightclub in particular i spent i remember spending five five years there one night 
<laughs> that's the kind of place it was. I had a chuckle when I read just that. The, just the longest, the longest night in the world. And I'd had a couple of incidents and I kind of got through it, but inside I was terrified. And at the end of the night, I just thought, I'm going to tell John I can't do this. I'm going to thank him. I'm going to tick it off my list on my pyramid of, of stood on the door. And at the end of the night, he just threw me a compliment. He said, I've done well. He said, you didn't embarrass us. Hmm. You know, you didn't fall over and trip anybody up. You know, you, when you needed to, you were there. He said, you're a bit of a greenhorn. But he said, if you want to stay, you can stay. So he saw something in me. Hmm. And I was so overwhelmed by this compliment. I just thought, well, I'll stay a little bit longer. Um, and that's what I decided to do. And I ended, up, I ended up in that particular place for four years. And ended up working there six nights a week. Um, and there was a place where there was an incident, there were incidents every night, you know, for the whole 10 years or the whole decade I was working on the door. There was incidents, often several incidents, every single night. So my main thing was with going on the door was recognising that I got a second down in, in Shotokan in the KUGB. It's a hard system um, and it's a hard it was a very difficult, I took my grading under, um, under a noida. So it was very strict, very high standard, but it didn't help me because I was still afraid. I got physical skills, but wasn't sure what worked and what didn't work. And I was surrounded by these gods of martial arts who were telling me what worked, um, but they were all telling me something different. They were all talking about blocking counter, trapping counter, you know, never attacking first. Um, and don't mention fear because if you're feeling fear you're doing something wrong so I just thought I was the only person in the world who was afraid and then of course I stood on the door with people like John Anderson who looked like he was cut out of granite and this this team of amazing doormen who didn't show any fear at all so I just thought it's just me that's terrified mm -hmm. and of course I realized that you know it wasn't the lack of fear it was just the managing the managing of fear so I'd gone on there to figure out what worked for myself. If the gods of martial arts weren't going to tell me, or they were going to tell me, but 20 of them were giving me 20 different answers, and they can't all be right. And even at the age of 15, I remember standing in a pub and thinking, watching a bar fight and thinking, what I'm learning will not fit into that. It just won't. Even as a 15-year-old, I knew that. And then I remember chiding myself afterwards and saying, yeah, but you don't know nothing. Who do you think you are? And, you know, you've got to listen to these people. You can't question the masters. But I just kept thinking, it won't work. And then when I was at Buster's that night, I just, same thing. I just thought, it isn't going to work in this. Not the way I've got it. So I started to, I wanted to find out for myself what worked. And, of course, I found out very, very quickly what worked. Everybody on the door knew. It was preemption. Mm. You know, if you couldn't, if you couldn't talk the situation down, if you couldn't, if you couldn't escape the situation, the only thing that consistently worked um, in a confrontation was preemption. And you used all sorts of artifice um, and dialogue and all sorts of things to get that first shot in. And it was so simple. I remember thinking, that it can't be that simple. And I thought, well, why is, why is nobody in the martial arts talking about this? And yet I'm on the nightclub door and everybody knows it. They weren't even articulating it though, Joe. Mm. They weren't articulating that they got something different. But I knew that all of the doormen in, the, in a city that was full of tough people found the martial arts, quietly found it a joke. Mm. They, all, they all felt it was um, a bit socks and sandals. It was all a bit 
soft option. They didn't rate it because it had lots of guys come up who just didn't hack it. Um, but so they knew the secret, but they weren't really asked, they weren't really aware of what they've got. But I noticed it. I thought that works. Not only does it work, it's brutally effective. It's so effective that you don't want to do it because it's so easy. It's almost like you. It's almost like you'd learned a siddha, like a magic. And you had you would be standing in front of somebody and think thinking to yourself, he doesn't know that I'm controlling this range. I'm controlling his adrenaline. I'm controlling the up and the down of it. I'm controlling him with the use of sound, with dialogue. I'm even controlling his time in his time and place. If I if I use dialogue in a certain way, I can pull him out of his body, send him into the future, and show him what what the repercussions of of confronting somebody like me would be. And then I could pull him back, and and that that would trigger the flight response because I'd say, oh, listen, if you want to kick off in my front room, I'll find out where you live. I'll find out where you work. I'll come round your house when you're having tea with your mum. You know, how do you feel about that? This is my front room. This is where I earn my bread and butter. How do you feel about me coming to your work? And so straight away, you would transport people out of their body, into the future, back to where they are, and then they would back away. So you started to learn all these things. Because also, it became in, in the end like you're like shooting ducks in a barrel because you knew something that they didn't know. It didn't mean they weren't dangerous, Joe. They were still dangerous. Drunk people do the most unpredictable things. Young people are hunting for reputations. Um, people are dying on these doors because they, they have a drink or they, or they get arrogant or they don't think quick enough or they turn their back. So it was very dangerous. But we, we had, um, in, in the Old Testament, they would call this the world to come. They always talk about when you, when you learn these skills, you will, you, you will benefit in the world to come. What it means is the world to come means post-knowledge or post-ignorance. So once you learn this new knowledge, you, you end up in another paradigm and you're working with people who are in an old paradigm. So you're, you're able to do things against them that they don't even know that you're doing. You're able to control them and they don't know you're doing it. So these are the things I started to learn and I started, I went, I went back to my Shotokan class. I've got a Shotokan class. And I said to my, my students, we're doing this all wrong. We're going to change everything. And that's what I started to practice preemption. I started to practice the fence work. I started to recreate real situations to trigger adrenaline, to, tr to trigger uncertainty. We started to do line training, animal day training, everything we could to, to try and replicate a real situation. So we started to learn all of these different skills. We started to, you know, then I started to take them around the country and eventually around the world. When I started to teach them around different places, I recognized that um, the stuff I'd learned, most people weren't going to be able to use it, even though it was simple. They wouldn't be able to use it because first of all, uh, they hadn't got the skill set. Uh, you know, uh, secondly, they wouldn't be able to control the adrenaline. They wouldn't be able to control the fear because that, you know, that takes like a, full-time training to understand this and to to be able to work it so i started to think i've got to give these people something that will protect them so i started to teach avoidance escape verbal dissuasion loopholing posturing anything but a physical response and then i would say to them the truth listen if it becomes physical this is the only thing i've found that works i said you know there are all these other arts that are wonderful 
but most of them you wouldn't want to put into a real situation. You're never going to have the room to kick. And grappling, you've always got to presume you're facing somebody that's carrying, that's, that's got a weapon, or there's going to be two or three of them. And if you go to the ground, you're either going to get your head jumped on or you're going to get stabbed. I said, so, it's, so you don't choose the option of going to the ground. It's too dangerous. This isn't a match fight. This is a situation that might start with an argument between you and one person and end up with five people around you that don't even know the original person who start kicking your head in because they, they've had a drink and start taking sides. So I started to teach the reality of what I've learned and recognizing that most people aren't going to be like me and you. They're not going to make it a profession. So I've got to protect them. So I started to teach them about attack ritual. I started to teach them about their own biology, about how to control their own biology with you know, things like diaphragmatic breathing. I started to teach them how to, you know, how to hit hard. You know, there's, there's a million books on self-defense, but you can say it in one line, can't you? Learn to hit hard. So I started to teach them how to hit hard. I started to teach them about the law, law in the general, law in the particular. The particular law is judicial. This is what happens if you hit somebody. Um, you're unlikely to be convicted for what you do, but you will be convicted for what you say. So you've got to know how to quote the law. You've got to know how to work within the law and quote the law. And the general law is the karmic law. There is, this is a, an action with a consequence. There will be consequences. You're going to hit this person tonight. There's a fair chance that he's going to come back tomorrow night with a team. He may be connected. You may get a four o'clock, a 4 a.m. phone call saying, we're going to shoot your wife and kids. Somebody may try and kill you. I said, so there are consequences. The, the consequences might be that you get taken to a police station. You might get convicted. You might go to prison. You might lose your liberty. If you lose your liberty, the good, there's a good chance you'll lose your wife and your family. Um, so I started to teach the harsh realities. I got rid of all of the smoke and mirrors, got rid of all the romance. And I showed people how ugly it was but also how beautiful it was. Because once you recognize that you can control that situation and you can win that situation physically quite easily because of your magic, even just with the sound of your voice, I started to practice Kotodamagaku, you know, from Aikido, the use of magic sound, or uh, in, Egypt, in Egyptology, they call it um, uh, Heka, the use of sound. So I started to use shaped sound to uh, control people. So if I got somebody in front of me and I wanted to trigger their flight response, I would use harsh sound or I'd use projected sound, like this is what's gonna happen in the future. I'd use little sharp staccato, little sharp mudras, little movements, and I'd make myself bigger and I would be very direct and very certain. So I would use sound to climb inside somebody, trigger their flight response, and make them step away so that they didn't end up getting into a conflict with somebody that's, that you know, kind of knows a lot more than them. Once I started to realize how to do that, using mudras, using control, using sense, using sound, I started to recognize much later I could use that in a healing way as well. I could start using that like you guys do. You guys are experts at de-escalation, about talking situations down, you know, um, people like Ellis, Ellis Amdar, who do this um, conflict de-escalation. 
I started to recognize I could be, instead of being, you know, a warmonger, I could be a Kissinger. I could start doing some across the table negotiations. And much later, much later, when I tipped into the Budo, I would start using mudras, you know, hands, touch, voice to heal. Literally to lift somebody out of a depression, to change somebody's mood, to heal somebody just with the use of sound. It became a, an amazing, amazing, fascinating um, study for me. And obviously, you know, that this, I'm, talking, I'm talking about a broad arc. At the beginning, I was just knocking people out every single night yeah. um, and because I was so insecure. I was so frightened and I'd learned these skills. So if anybody confronted me, I didn't take long. I was I was balding, I was skinny, um, I was um, soft spoken, I was quite quite feminine, you know, I was quite uh, soft. So people uh, would be queuing up to have a go at me, queuing up to fight me. Um, so I found myself in lots and lots of confrontations, and I, in the beginning I was so insecure that I was knocking people out all the time. But I was knocking people out so often that it became very frightening. Mm. You know, I remember knocking four people out in one night, in one fight. Um, and it wasn't just that you knocked them out. They'd, they'd, hit, they'd fall, they'd land on their teeth, mm. there'd be blood everywhere, there'd be girlfriends screaming, women crying. It was a very ugly situation. So I started to recognise I can't keep doing this. This is, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant, it's not arrogant in any way at all, but, it, but that, that felt too easy. I thought there's got to be a bigger game in town. And this is when the biggest revelation came, the biggest realization. I recognized that these enemies that were queuing up to fight me on the door were all projections from my own conceptualization of the world. I believed the world was dangerous and that people were out to get me personally. That, that had been implanted in my head as a child when I was, I was sexually groomed and abused by a, a teacher and he left me with this parasite or this cognition this damaged uh, twisted cognition that nobody could be trusted not even your own family not even the people you love and you've got to build up an armory and you've got to protect yourself and you've got to protect other people so i was on the door watching a physical manifestation of all of my monsters literally queuing up in front of me when I realized it was my damaged cognition, my, my conceptualization of the world that was wrong, I started to go, this was consciousness, conscious, I was, my consciousness was expanding and I became aware of it. And it started to free me from denotation. So rather than looking at this person here, like a conceptualization, um, you know, if you conceptualize something, it creates a form. If you create a form, the form will have an aspect. So if my conceptualization is that this person is an enemy, he will make the form of an enemy with the aspect of, um, you know, of uh, attack. He's going to attack me. Once I recognized that and recognized that actually I'd created this conceptualization. Um, and if I was brave enough, I, I could observe this conceptualization until it neutralized back into its natural state of um, neither wave nor particle you know neither neither negative nor positive just energy so i started to practice that with in my own head i started to deconceptualize all these enemies and you know what joe 
it took a few years, but the enemy started to dissipate as my consciousness expanded. Even the infrastructure that I'd built with my conceptualization started to disappear. Nightclubs were getting knocked down. Pubs that I'd worked in were literally demolished and flats were put in their place. One place I worked where it was very violent um, ended up becoming a hairdresser's, obviously, which is, I've, I say this joke all the time, but it was no good to me. It was no good to me at all. So um, I saw the real magic in what was happening. I recognized that I'd created the violence, I'd maintained the violence. And when, it, when I saw that, I uh, dissolved the violence in my life. It took quite a long time to do that because most of these things were residing in me as parasites, as semi-autonomous thought forms. Um, and as I started to go in, this is in Islam, they call this the greater jihad, the inner battle. So the world, the, the fight out there, you know, nightclubs, security, that's, they call that the lesser battle. This is the greater battle. And there's the lesser jihad and the greater jihad. The greater jihad is when you go, okay, I can see all the projections. Now I've got to come back to the projector. I've got to come back to the film, the perceptions, the, con the conceptualizations, the presets, you know, the cognitions. And I've got to find denotation. I've got to dissolve that. And that's, what, that's, what, that's when I tipped into the Budo end of the martial arts mm. and started working inward. And I, I literally saw the effects in my world. I, you know, so rather than standing in nightclub doors and having fights and... Um, you know, jumping on people's heads, you know, doing a 56 move cat on somebody. Hmm. I'm having conversations with people like yourself mm. and, and I'm writing books or I'm doing films or I'm doing stage plays. So all that massive energy that I had that was coming out of this singularity, this black hole in the very center of Jeff Thompson, instead of it coming out and expanding from a single cell to a world of violence, I was coming out into this massive output of writing, mm. talks, you know, films, plays, everything I wanted to have a go at. Mm. And I've suddenly found this, as I, as I contracted and as I contracted the egoic stuff and expanded the consciousness, I just suddenly found myself in the most amazing, beautiful places. But I don't want to underestimate that. What I've experienced on the door at Buster's, this extreme violence, before I could clear that from myself, I had to go into that inner war and it was 10 times more bloody. It was 10 times more terrifying. Confronting the things in the very core of my being was much more difficult than, fa than facing the projection of it. Mm. Like oh. on the door. One thing I, I did um, find very interesting, just tracking your story in, uh, in notes, was that um, initially, obviously, the, the fear of violent confrontation drove you to the door. It was being accepted by people that you looked up to. They were, they were yeah, hard yeah. men that seemed to have no fear that kept you there, at least initially, their, their, their level of acceptance. And then over time, as you started to, I guess, build the confidence in your own physical abilities, it be, it, the violence itself always became an intoxication. It was something you were looking yeah. forward to. And you, you mentioned several times throughout the book being noticed and, and, and being somebody, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, and not just in the, in the violence sector, but later on as well, uh, which we'll talk about in the writing. But I just want to drill down on that with the, um, 
getting to a point where violence starts off as something that's scary and then eventually becomes intoxicating and something that you, you almost seek and you create for yourself. Uh, because I, I found that myself in, in my short career in the door where eventually I started looking for those, those yeah. couple of seconds each night where things were chaotic. Um, and I'm interested in the impact that had not only in your own psyche, but also on your relationships with people around you who uh, were living in a different reality to you. Yeah. Well, they, you certainly go from being this factory worker, the young family, like a nobody, to suddenly being a somebody. You are somebody. You hold the power on the door. You can say yes or no. You can let people in or you can turn them away. You start to learn some physical skills and you start to take out you know, some real monsters, some of the people you confront and take out in fights, uh, you know, have big reputations, they're gangsters, you know, they're people that other people are afraid of. So you start to get this reputation. So your ego grows fat on that. It, it grows fat on drama, it goes fat on notification, you know, and you start to experience that and, and uh, you start to, I say you enjoy that. I never enjoyed the violence. I enjoyed the rush of adrenaline afterwards. Yeah, no one enjoys losing a fight. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, that afterwards you always get this euphoria. And, and I think a lot of times people mistake, they, they think that you enjoy violence because, um, you know, because you get this feeling afterwards. But nobody enjoys it at the time. And of course, you, you, you might feel good about winning, but you don't feel good about if you have a bad night, if you have a, if you have a, a, a black dog and you know, you um, feel as though you bottled it a little bit or your courage wasn't there or you come out of a situation not brilliantly. Um, so, you know, it was, it was the aftermath of winning that made you feel good. But there comes a point, and of course, you know, you start, you, you, you're looking at things through filters. So you think people admire you, you think they love you, but actually they're just afraid of you because you're a hair trigger. You haven't got a great articulation, as in you're not, you know, there's not a great vocabulary there. So you, you fall into threat and violence very quickly if the, ego's, if the ego becomes threatened. So it wasn't until much later that I realized the people I thought admired me were actually very afraid of me. And I became a bully. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, that's not a nice thing for me to say. And, I'm, and, I'm, um, and I don't like to say it, but it was true. I used my physical presence and I used my physical ability to get my own way with things. I wouldn't have known it at the time. It's only looking back, um, I was quite ashamed of the fact that I became a bully. I became, was it the Nietzsche thing? Be careful when you hunt the dragon, that you don't become the dragon. When you look into the void, the void looks back. Um, so I started to misuse these skills. So what started out as a journey into some kind of uh, salvation became a search for redemption. I became, I became violent, I became a monster. And I did properly batter people. And, it, and again, it wasn't because I enjoyed it, it was because I was afraid. If I'd met somebody like, say, Tank, who was a notorious guy in Coventry, when I knocked him out, I wanted to make sure that he wasn't capable of coming back to fight me again. So I made sure that when he was unconscious, I completely destroyed him. So when he woke up the next day, even though he might want to come back and get me, he's not in any physical condition. And of course, the reports would come back that even when you was out, he was still kicking you. He was still stamping on your head. So there was a, there was a lot of things I used to do to prevent people from coming back. This starts to have an adverse effect on every single thing you do. You're obviously building up um, a karmic trail. 
Um, my relationship with my wife changed. Um, I became bloated. Uh, I also put on a lot of weight, it got quite heavy. Um, I had a couple of affairs. I started getting into crime. I started to be a bodyguard to the kiters, you know, to the guys stealing credit cards. All things that I used weak rationalization to justify. But I, I was starting to tip into the, into, into the criminal world. Lots of my friends became full-time criminals. Some of, them, some of them tipped into murder and ended up doing lifetime sentences. And I, I, I was on my way to that as well because I had a reputation. People wanted to pay me to collect debts. They wanted to pay me to run uh, violent doors. And they would pay me a lot of money to do it. Um, and it had an effect on everything I did. So it started to destroy my whole family unit. So what, was, what began as physical and then psychological started to spill in very much into the sociological. Um, and I did a lot of damage there, you know, and, and all the time walking around thinking these people respect me. I turn up at a club, they let me in free and there's drinks on the bar like winner's cups. Mm. But actually people were just afraid. And every time I cut off the head of the Hydra, another head grew back. The violence grew on the violence. The pain grew on the pain. The drama grew on the drama. So that side of it was too easy. That's why I needed to start going into the Buddha, into the deeper end. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a good segue because you, you mentioned in the book that um, you felt like a hypocrite teaching Buddha uh, at this time in your life. And uh, look, my, my first exposure to you through the martial arts was this was a guy who had reconnected martial arts back to their origin. Yeah, before it was a, a, a social hobby for middle class kids. It was a fighting system, and, and Jeff Thompson was the, is, the, is a man who's taken it back to, to its origins. And uh, so, so in a way, you're almost like the, the poster child of a real Buddha, not not Taibo. Yeah. yeah. But the whole time, you're feeling like a hypocrite. So, do you just want to expand upon why what was going on in, in your mind that, that you were feeling like such a hypocrite um, talking about Buddha at this time? Because you know, you talk about Buddha. And it's easy to talk about. It's very exciting. You know, we're talking about Buddha. We're talking about secrets. We're talking about the siddhas, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the kind of magical powers you start to get as you start to tip into it. But, but how can you talk about Buddha when you're having an affair and, and you're cheating on your wife? How can you talk about Buddha when you're fiddling your tax? You know, how can you talk about, and I'm talking generally, you know, because I looked at the, the guys I admired in the martial arts and I thought, you know, this guy bullies his students. This this other guy, you know, um, hasn't paid tax for 15 years. This other guy has got three mistresses, and and I was just I was just as bad as them. I was talking Budo, but I wasn't living it. I was talking about the esoteric end of martial arts, but I was still addicted to sexual porn. I was still having affairs. Um, I, I was I was developing an addiction to violence. I was four stone overweight. I looked in the mirror when I got my fifth jam, um, uh, which is, was meant to be the, the master grade. I remember looking in the mirror and thinking that the, there is no master here. This guy isn't a master. I remember Peter saying to me, Peter Considine, he said, sometimes we get a grade not for what we've done, but what for, for what's expected of us. Mm. I remember thinking, I've, I've got to honor this grade I've been given. As I knew I wasn't even in control of my body weight. How can we how can we change the world if we can't even wipe our own ass? If we can't even wipe our own nose? How can we 
talk about change in the world when we can't even control our own waist size. Can't talk about this Buddha end of things if I haven't even got control of my own body weight. So I recognized that I could have a fight and I'd learned some skills and I developed a lot of courage, but it was all exoteric. I hadn't gone into the esoteric where I started to confront the genesis of these things. So I was, I was, a, I was a hypocrite, which was important that you, I think it's important that you are a hypocrite and that you bump into the hypocrite and you go, this person, it's almost like when they got in the fifth down, it was like the license for me to pull a filter away and have a look at myself and think, I'm just a fat, overweight bully. Mm. <laughs> I was even bullying my wife. If, my, if I wanted to have a cuddle, I can tell you that me and my wife are very close and I treat her like a princess. But if I wanted a cuddle and she didn't want to, you know, if I wanted sex and she didn't want sex, I'd be slamming doors um, and giving the, the cold back in bed. What is that? That's subtle violence. Mm. You know, I would, it was basically saying, until you give me sex, I'm going to withdraw all my love and I'm going to slam doors and I'm going to frighten you. Mm. I had no idea that's what I was doing, but suddenly I could see that. I could see the masks I was wearing. I could see the, the subtle violence in all my life. I could see that below this fifth dam, below this coat that I was wearing, was an insecure, frightened boy. And I needed to get to that. I needed to get to the very essential eye and start to build that. I needed to get rid of this carapace. So I was a hypocrite of the, of the highest order. So then I started to look at, the ethics and the morals and the way I was living. And that meant taking a cold, hard, honest look at who I was and how I lived. I can't tell you how inspiring it was to recognize that I was creating all of this violence in my life with my conceptualization of things and how I could change that. But only if I was prepared to go inside and actually look these monsters in the face. So it became an, in, an internal cleansing i think in christian mysticism they call it kenosis it's an emptying you empty yourself in order to make room for christ or you empty your ego in order to make room for the christ energy or the krishna energy or consciousness so that's what my that's what the real buddha was so i i would say i'm still a hypocrite now i'm still making mistakes the only thing i can say in my in my defense is that i catch it quickly and i admit it but i'm still a hypocrite most days and i'm still making mistakes most days um, and my ego sometimes is still too fat um, and and i'm nowhere near as clever as i would like to think i am so i can see that and i'm working on that but i in deep inside me there's a kindness and a love for people and my dharma has always been the same when i find the truth I'm going to share it, mm. even though that scares me. I'm going to do that. When I find the truth, I'm going to share it. So it's important. It's not, it's not bad that we're hypocrites. It's just bad if we don't see it. Um, and if we don't see it, at some point, someone's going to point it out because there's nothing better than the general public to point out you're a hypocrite if you are. Mm. So they're good. They're kind of like little, they're little, like little inspectors that run around working for you for free. And if there is an aberration, or there's an inconsistency, or if you're uh, incongruent or a hypocrite, they'll point it out. And if it's true, you'll know because it'll hurt. And then you go, well, there's a teacher, so I'll let that go. Most of the time, most of the time, you know, they're looking at you from an aspect, so they're not often they're not right. 
you don't take everything people say you only take it if it's true so i started to work my life so i could become congruent aligned religious religious in the sense of religion means to realign it comes from the latin word religare to realign so i was realigning to my highest self so it was my thinking and my saying and my doing were congruent whereas before when i was talking buddha and being a hypocrite I was talking Buddha, but I wasn't thinking Buddha and I wasn't acting Buddha. But I mean, thinking, talking is a good start. But at some point, someone's going to say, do you really believe this, Buddha? You go, yeah, of course I do. So how come you're four stone overweight? How mm. come you're still greedy? How come you still like to watch sexual porn? How come you're still addicted to violent films? Mm. How come you still call it? How come you still fiddle your tax? How, mm. come, you've, how come you're still fiddling your taxes? Now, how come you, how come other people have still got more control of your endocrine system than you? Mm. They can drop a bad tweet or a bad phone call and, and set you off for the day. How come how if you really believe this, how come that's still happening? Mm. So you see what I mean? So congruence uh, is is a very, very powerful weapon. It's, it comes back to certainty again, which is an attribute. It's an attribute of consciousness. So we start going, my thinking, my saying, my doing need to be in alignment. And that alignment needs to all come from a place of kindness, from a place of love. And that comes from a place of understanding the greater law, understanding Buddha, which is in this realm, causation. Mm. We can't deny causation in the body and out of it. We have to start becoming masters of causation. We need to know the general rule, which is the Dharma, causation, cause and effect, the law of compensation. We need to understand the particular rule, which is the particular Dharma, which is what is my place in that? So I understand the general rule, but what's my place in it? And I, I know what my place in it is. I know what I know what God wants me to do, for want of a better word. I know what I'm here to do. And I, I do that. Even if even if that scares me, I'll continue to do it. And this is what I'm doing now. This is my Dharma now. This to to tell my story, to mm. tell my truth, to to do what I promise to do, which is say to people, uh, this is what I've learned. Like, for instance, I can say to you, I've learned that violence isn't difficult. The truth of it is very obvious, but, it, but there are consequences to it. And those consequences are dire. They're real and they're dire. Even if violence is well meant, it still rebounds on you because there's still a law of causation. And if the judiciary doesn't get you, the karmic law will get you. All debts are collected at some point. The, the universe always rebalances itself. So you start to understand that, and then you become true Budo, which you, I would. One, I remember you met, one of the things you mentioned in your email was about who influenced me, mm. and Ushiba was probably the guy that influenced me the most. Because um, if you get a chance, anybody listening, have a look at look up Ushiba on Wikipedia, and it, you know, it'll, or if, I've written it down here. But Ellis Ellis Amdar, Amdar wrote, a, wrote a book called Hidden in Plain Sight. Hmm. Uh, been on the podcast previously really great was guy. he uh, yeah. he's a really he's a really great guy he's a, i really love his stuff but he wrote a great book about ushaba um and ushaba was a was a very congruent guy it doesn't mean he was perfect hmm. it meant it meant he was congruent congruence is is not about being perfect it's about when i fall out of alignment saying i fell out of alignment i'm going to publicly announce it and i'm going to come back to balance again so he's a guy, you know, that lived and breathed his Budo, but not, you know, in his early days, he was, he was a warrior. 
you know, his first epiphanies came because he had life and death encounters. He was in a, he was in a firing squad once <laughs> when he was training with the new Sabura Debushi. Yeah. He was, it was uh, like a Japanese high priest. So what I loved about him is it was, I felt there was a real alignment with my journey and his journey. Mm. Uh, he found the, as you rightly said, he found what, what the marshal actually meant because we can't get to the Buddha while we don't understand the marshal. Mm. We don't know what it means to have a fight outside a chip shop on a Friday night. If we don't know how to work that, and if we're not frightened of our ability to hurt somebody, then we don't know the martial way. And if we don't know the martial way, how can we tip into Budo? So we've got to be able to look at that and go, okay, I've got that. I understand that. Now I want a higher knowledge. I want to be able to go to the genesis of this. And the genesis, the genesis is that we are, this comes from Hindu, Hindu mythology, which is we create, we maintain, and we dissolve our own reality. We are the inlet and the outlet. We are the black hole of our reality. We are the singularity or the quantum vacuum. Everything starts and ends with us. Mm. I am certain of that because I've experienced it in very, very real terms. I'm certain of it. I'm not as good at it as I'd like to be, but I'm certain. <laughs> and Jeff, I think that's why your, your voice in this space is so powerful because you've been there and you've walked those streets. You've actually been in the muck and therefore being on the other side of it makes your voice so much more credible than someone who has had a, you know, from the, from the surface and everyone's got their demons, but they've had a charmed existence and now they're telling you how you should be the same. I think yeah. uh, someone who's been there and, and it has the honesty and the vulnerability to say, this is how broken I was. And this is how I thought I fixed myself, but I actually created more problems. And now here's the journey I'm on now. I think that is, that's powerful. Um, and I think I, I, we're, I'm being conscious of the time, but uh, I would want, just wondering if you've got um, some practical advice, if we've got listeners out there that perhaps are still where you were on the, on the door of busters, metaphorically, uh, in their life, where they're, they're still engaging those demons and they're still, maybe they're, they're, they're trying to find some, some way out. What sort of practical tips would you give them to start that journey out? It's, it's one thing to change your profession. I think it's, it's easy to say, write a book, make some money, sell some DVDs, and then you don't have to bounce in nightclubs anymore. I think that's, that's one thing. But it's, it's one thing to change your profession. It's another thing to change your, your whole psychology. Yeah. Um, I, I would look at something like apophatic theology, which sounds complicated, but apophatic theology is, is the theology of negation. It says that uh, we don't know what God is. We don't know what ab the absolute is. We don't know what consciousness is, but we know what it isn't. So in other words, if we want to find my essential I, who I actually am, that's very difficult to do. So we find it, we find it by negate by negation. So we start to look at in our life and, and start to have an honest look at who we know we're not. I know I'm not jealous. I know that's not a good game. I know I'm not a thief. That's not a good game. I know that I'm not um, violent. So I can get rid of that. I know I'm not envious or greedy. I know I'm not a gossip. You know, I'm no, I know I'm none of those vices. They are, not, they are not the things I'd like to see in the newspaper tomorrow. They're not things I'd like to see written in my epitaph because they're not who I am. So once you start to recognize who you're not, you can stop engaging those parts of you who you're not. You have to first look at that. While we're still rationalizing violence, of course, we're going to keep doing it, but we rationalize it because we're scared to let go of it because it's, it's the way we control the world. It's, it's the way we keep things in order. But there'll come a point where that'll be taken off you. 
if you don't look at it yourself at some point, you know, that will be taken off you, however it's taken off you. I had a very good friend of mine who was a monster physically, um, and he was never going to go into the Budo. Then he had a very bad heart attack, um, and he lost all of his physical ability, and he went into the Budo like that. But we don't want to wait that long. We want to start looking ourselves. If we're true martial artists in the true sense, we want to look at Budo, then we, start, we need to start recognizing Dharma, which is the law, the law around us. You know, everything you put out is going to keep returning at some point or another, and you carry the debt of that in your body, in every cell of your body. If you don't pay the debt off, it carries over to your children and to your family, of course. Now, I've seen the damage I've done to all of my kids because of my own karma, because of my own violent living. So we start to, we start to recognize who we're not. We do it very brutally, honestly. And then we basically stop engaging it. So if anger rises up, we observe anger as an energy. We deconceptualize it until it's just a neutral energy and then we put it somewhere else. So for me, I'll take that energy and I'll put it into an article or a book or a video or whatever, or a run or a training session or a talk. Um, so if, um, if jealousy rises up or if greed rises up or if gossip rises up, everything, every time something rises up, just imagine if it's say, for instance, if it's people like to assassinate other people's characters, just imagine sitting with your friend and you put a tape recorder by you and before you start to destroy somebody, their character, switch the tape on and we'll say, what I'll do once I've finished this, I'll, I'm going to pass this on to my friend and see how he feels about what I've said. Most of the time we wouldn't say it if we knew our friend was going to listen. So we start to recognise that if we don't want to see it in the newspaper tomorrow, it's probably not coming from a righteous place. So practically, we can start looking at who we're not and stop engaging it. That's what they call the greater jihad. That's why Muhammad, when, when he was watching the soldiers come back from war, some of them were dead. Some of them were dismembered. Some of them were dying. A lot of them were mortally wounded. And he was like this. He says, well done on the lesser jihad. And they were outraged. What do you mean lesser jihad? He goes, the, j the greater jihad is when you go inside and engage in the war there. And what he was saying is, all of this stuff out here is a projection from something in you. And you've got, at some point, you've got to go in and face that with, a new, with new tools, with, with different weapons. And you've got to kill it from the inside out. You've got to take it off the film. So we can start to do that today. I mean, just take your clothes off and look in the mirror. If you're still carrying weight, you're not using energy you know, if, 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 um, if you imagine God is consciousness, then the language of God is energy. So are we using our energy right? Are we really masters of this body? Can we work this magic, this Budo, on this physical body? Or am I still carrying lots of energy in my body that could be, I could have produced something with? So we take our clothes off and go, okay, this is what I did. I'm five stone overweight, so I've got a lot of energy there that isn't producing anything. So I got rid of it. I started to place that energy literally into the work I was doing. So I mastered palate. Once you master palate, you master this, this, the sensual body. The senses fall into alignment. Once, you've, once the senses fall into alignment, you get control of yourself. Once you get you control of yourself, you can control of the world. You've got some Buddha there. So we can start just by getting the palate right, just by getting the food right. 
that what we eat and what we drink, what we take in through our eyes, what we take in through our ears, what we breathe, um, you know, the, the company we keep, the place we live, all of that is food. Everything that comes in through the senses. What people are listening to now is food. This is good food because it's coming from a place of um, alignment and it's coming from a place of love. But you can also go out there and get lots of negative food and you take it in and it becomes literally becomes flesh. It's not a metaphor. So we can start being dis, dis, uh, discerning about what we take in through the eyes, what we take in through the nose, what we take in, what we eat and swallow, what we, what we inject. <laughs> so we can, we can start with the basic things. People think those, the, those fundamental things aren't important, but they are the, they are the, 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 the foundation of everything else. So if it doesn't come from kindness, don't do it. If you want to do some esoteric exercise today, go out, don't gossip about anybody, um, and don't be unkind about anybody. Even even the even the you know the the hate bait, you know, you go on online and you've got the big the big glaring politicians, they're dead easy to hate. You know, people are reaping energy off us all the time just by putting figures in front of us that it's easy to hate. Just don't hate them. Don't judge them. Just observe it. Observe it as a non-conceptualized energy and just watch how quickly it stops affecting your life. If you find yourself falling into judgment and having an opinion about everything, just energy is just being raped every single day. And it's essential energy. It comes from the essential eye. So we just come back. We just start to observe things. And then we'd be very, very, very careful about what we engage what we identify with, what we give life. If I give hate or anger um, engagement, it will incarnate me. And from the time it incarnates me, I am hate. That's going to affect my wife. That's going to affect my children. That's going to affect my friends. It's going to go out into the world. It's going to affect the world. It's going to add to the fatberg of karmic debt that this world has already got. You know, we don't need to add to it. We can be kind. So people think the esoteric exercises are, you know, something fantastical it's it's normally something very obvious and very mundane but very very difficult to do jeff uh, i've got a i've got a couple of questions here that are coming from listeners i i uh, put a call out to if anyone had anything in particular to ask you so they they won't follow any particular chronological order but uh okay. feel, feel free to answer them as uh, as in-depth or as or as briefly as you want the first one comes from a former guest actually um jim snipe who originally from birmingham uh and uh Probably, probably frequented the, some similar bars to you uh, in the 80s. Uh, he's, now, he's now a registered nurse and a, and a healthcare violence expert here in Melbourne. Uh, but uh, he wanted to know if you had any run-ins with English football violence in the 80s. Uh, during the 80s, Coventry went through a, a very strong, uh, I would say, a two-generational displacement. So in the 60s, Coventry was, was, a, was a hub for people from all across the world because we were an industrial city. Mm. Um, so in the 80s, we had factories everywhere. By the, in the 60s, sorry. So people came from um, India. They came from Jamaica. They came from the West Indies. They came from Scotland, Ireland. So we had this a massive culture mix of people in Coventry. But within two generations, the car industry died. So on the, second, on the third generation, you've got a fam you've got um, Families of children um, being brought up in a city with no work. So we had a huge displacement of violence. So when I was working the door, there was 
massive amounts of violence. And amongst those were lots of gangs, the Bell Green crew, the, the Stoke Oldenmore crew. And these, these were, you know, these people were, were hugely dangerous. So, but they were also, to answer his question, they were also in the, they were part of the football crowds and all that as well. And I did used to stand on the doors for some of the football matches. But um, yeah, most of our stuff came from designated gangs. Um, and they, you know, like I said, they, lots, of, lots of people were murdered during that period. So we, we did encounter a lot of them, yeah. Yeah. Okay, next one comes from uh, Nicky Aston. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, uh, this, is, this is something I'm, I'm curious about because you're, you're obviously, you're someone who quotes the Bible, the Torah, uh, Hindu and Buddhist scriptures, and you quoted Chinese philosophers, the Quran. Uh, pre, like, I, I've had to Google so many words read, reading your books. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he wanted to know, um, do you have a favorite spiritual teacher or scripture? Um, I would say that my... Uh, my center point is is uh, mysticism, Christ, Christian mysticism, so Christ, but not necessarily Christ as the person, but Christ consciousness. So I was brought up with Christianity, so that's my starting point. A bit like my first martial, my first very strong martial art was Shotokan. So that became my hub, and from there I went into judo, wrestling, collegiate wrestling, Greco, freestyle you know, tie and all to the, all these other systems, but all my, my base was always, that was always, um, Chodokan. That was a good solid foundation. So I'd say my foundation is Christianity or Christ, but I also, I'm, I'm deeply studied, deeply into the study at the moment, into, uh, the Kabbalah, you know, the, the Tanya, the Zohar, call of all the, all the, all the Abrahamic faiths, the, the exegesis of it or the explanation of it. Um, I absolutely love Hinduism. I love the story of Arjuna. If you look at a chance to read the Bhagavad Gita, it is a discourse on fear and overcoming fear. So the, 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 uh, the Bhagavad Gita comes from the Vedic text. So you've got the Bhagavad Gita, which is um, a chapter of the Mahabharata. And the Mahabharata is a chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, and the, which is like 14 books. And the Srimad Bhagavatam, is is a uh, the fruits of the Vedas, which is five hundred thousand verses, but the the amount of knowledge and learning there is infinite. I've also studied um, Islam a lot. I love if you get a chance to read um, any biography on Muhammad and look at the, the Islamic texts again. Uh, it's if you get past the house ghost, you know the normal house ghost, which is it's religious. I can't go there, and it's terrorism and all that. If you get past the house ghosts and go into the arcana, into the secrets or the esoteric work, it's so frighteningly effective. If you go into the Quran, for instance, there's 99 names of Allah, and each of those names are are seen as attributes of God. But if you break that down, what it means is they are remedies. So if you've got fear, or if you've got depression, or if you've got, or if you've committed a crime and you think you can't be forgiven, each of these names is considered to be a remedy, um, an antidote to whatever you're feeling. So you wouldn't get that just from going, oh, the Quran, isn't that about what, you know, whatever. That's the normal house ghost. So I'm saying to people, get beyond the house ghost, go into the books, the attributes I've learned from not just studying the cat, the Quran, but studying the exegesis when you go into looking at people like 
you know, Rumi or Hafiz or, or Al Ghazali. These are hugely pragmatic guys who literally put their life on hold in order to find knowledge. So I would say, you know, um, I've, I've loved all of them. I love Sikhism as well. I love the Zoroastrian stuff. Zoroaster, in Zoroaster says, the world is relying on you to align yourself. It's not relying on you to go and fix Mr. Smith next door. It's not relying on you uh, to go to a far-flung country and save a village in India. It's relying on you to get yourself aligned. And when you get yourself aligned, the world will miraculously fall into place. It's, it's so pragmatic, Joe. Mm. But all of, the, all of the different Bibles I've looked at from all of the different faiths um, have those same pragmatic, didactic instructions. And they ask everything of you. They don't, it's not just something you read. When I was studying the Zohar, it was three months of full-time reading. And every single day, every single day for the entire duration of the reading, I just wanted to get up and run away because it was so frightening to whatever was in me. Whatever was in me didn't want to see it. My mind, my ego was absolutely attacking it. And I stayed, because I'm disciplined with the martial arts, I stayed with it and stayed with it. And the rewards, of course, didn't come from a paragraph or a line. The reward came from the compilation which, of which I made 70 pages of notes, which I reduced down to 40 and then down to 10 and eventually reduced it down to a page and a line. And, and then you find that the, the arcana came from a combination of all that reduced to a line. And that line was specific for me. It might not mean anything to you because mm. if there are 600,000 people read it, 600,000 people will find a bespoke fingerprint didactic instruction but you have to dedicate your life to to do it and you have to offer in the old testament they call it the burnt sacrifice in other words we have to or the animal sacrifice we have to we have to consume our egoic will our, our ego or our animal soul in order to do the work we understand this when we go to the gym because we we actually we we burn up our physical energy when the muscle burns fat we literally burn up our body in order to develop a physique. In the esoteric, it's no different, but we burn up the animal soul. We burn up the egoic soul. And that when we have resistance and the resistance says, don't sit down and read this, or you can't read this, and we make ourselves do it anyway, when we exercise our essential will, we, uh, we, we, that is the burnt sacrifice. So it's very uncomfortable um, and it's asking you to do the work all the time. And it's saying to you, go out in the world um, and, you know, you've got to, they, I think in Judaism, they call it the mitzvah. You've got to go out and do the charity. You've got to be kind to people. You've got to do the work that's difficult to do. You've got to take time for that person that you just want to walk past. Yeah. You've got to recognize that the person who is your enemy has actually got something for you. He's the guy, he's the guy to serve. He's got something for you. You've got something to give him. He's got something to give you. And when we hate him, we're not going to get that. We're just going to feed whatever's in us, you know. So yeah. I would, so I love all of them. Mm. Uh, David Maddox, if you're listening to this, David Maddox from Germany uh, had a question, but I'm pretty sure we've already answered it in depth in the regular interview. So <laughs> I won't get you to answer it again. Uh, okay. The last question, uh, I don't have a credit for it, but uh, uh, someone initially asked, uh, are you still training martial arts? And if so, what does your training look like? That's what this is. This is, this is what it looks like. <laughs> this is exactly what it looks like. Yeah, excellent. 
All right, Jeff, uh, you're going to stick around and do the bonus round in a second, uh, but I just want to encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Notes from a Factory Floor. Uh, I sat there and read it uh, almost in one sitting. It was uh, a couple of sittings over a couple of days just due to time only. Uh, but if you've enjoyed any of Jeff's other work, it's, uh, it's, it's the mortar between the bricks. It tells the story. It's, it's immensely vulnerable. Uh, it um, doesn't pull any punches, uh, certainly not, not, no, no self punches anyway. <laughs> Jeff is his own harshest critic, but it, there's tremendous learnings there. And probably the thing that, I, that excites me most is it, it puts a lot of material in a very accessible way for a lot of different people. I think there's, there's certain people in my life that I would have given your later books to, but they probably wouldn't have had palette for Watch My Back. And there's a lot of people that probably have palette for Watch My Back, but wouldn't have picked up the divine CEO. And I, and I think this is a book that is accessible to all those people and will give them exposure to elements that they can benefit from no matter where they are in their journey. So I want to thank you for writing it. Uh, but I also want to really encourage leaders, uh, readers to uh, pick it up. Thank you. All right, Jeff, uh, that'll, that'll do us for the, for the bonus, for the, for the main interview. We're going to do the bonus round right now. Thank you again, Jeff Thompson. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wow. What, an incredible, I won't even say what an incredible interview because I, I barely did anything. I don't know if you noticed, we're like 55 minutes in before I asked my third question. <laughs> I, I did very little in that one. Uh, I just got Jeff on the line and I poked him and, he, and he's filled the gold. Uh, look, I, I know not everyone's on the same wavelength with spirituality, but for Jeff, I mean, managing violence and his spiritual journey are one and the same. Uh, and they're, they're so tightly interconnected that it's impossible to talk about one without the other. And uh, I, I really think there's so much to be gained whether you're a spiritual person or not, listening to the insights of a man who has had such an incredible depth and breadth and intensity of experience when it comes to managing violence, uh, and then come out the other side as an incredibly peaceful, lovely, kind human being. I think there's so much to that. And I just want to thank Jeff for sharing his story. And I, I really do hope we get to do it again in the, in the very near future. All right, that's it. Make sure you head over to patreon.com forward slash managing violence if you'd like to hear more from Jeff. And uh, check us out on all our social media if you'd like to stay connected and see what's coming up next. Until then, I'll talk to you next time.